0: Named after the Greek goddess of dance and chorus, and also an allusion to historian Sally Baines' seminal book on postmodern dance, Terpsichore and Sneakers, Terpsichore magazine is a platform celebrating female dancers, choreographers, and bodies in motion, curated by me, dance critic and writer Emily May. Terpsichore aims to spotlight female contributions to the world of dance, an art form that is often perceived as female-dominated, but that in fact rarely encourages women towards positions of power. Posting information, images and videos of female dance pioneers, both past and present, on a daily basis on our Instagram account, Terms is now starting its very own podcast, where I will be interviewing leading women from the dance industry about their lives, careers and the female artists that have inspired them. I'm incredibly excited that for this episode, I had the chance to catch up with Ellen van Chulenberg, a legendary dance artist and my former Cunningham teacher at Laban. Born in Amsterdam and trained at what is now Codarts University of the Arts, Ellen danced with Rotterdam Work Centrum Dance and Netherlands Dance Theatre too before moving to New York City to study under Merce Cunningham and perform with experimental and postmodern choreographers including Bill T. Jones, Arnie Zane, David Gordon, Albert Reid, Jim Self, Tom Simmons and Carol Armitage. While in New York, Ellen met choreographer and enfant terrible of the British dance scene Michael Clark subsequently moving to London to become a founding member of his radical company, performing in some of the choreographer's most well-known and wild productions, working alongside legendary artists including Lee Bowery, Sarah Lucas, Charles Atlas and post-punk band The Fall. Michael Clarke is currently enjoying a major retrospective at the Barbican in London, of which Ellen is a key feature. I thought it was a perfect time to find out more about her fascinating career. Thank you again, Ellen, for joining me today on the podcast. How are you doing?
1: I'm um, well, considering all the, all the you know, all these complexities of life because of COVID. Wondering when it will all change again. And, you know, exhibitions closing. No, no, no outside life, really.
0: Yeah, it's quite difficult at the minute, but... That's maybe why it's quite nice to spend some time looking backwards. Obviously had an amazing career. And I had a first question that I want to ask you, which is how did you first get into dancing many years ago? And who were some of the first people that inspired you to get into the art
1: form? Uh, I I always loved moving. So I, I was, at first I, I, as a young person, like four till 12, I did gymnastics, which I just adored. And it was really for, the moving, for moving through space, not for to become a champion or something. I didn't have any of that, which was a, a bit of a shame. My coach always said, oh well, and, you know, more ambition, more ambition, but I just loved it. And then I did judo as well from the age of nine till 12. With my neighbor boy, who was, a, he looked sort of similar like me. We were both sort of skinny kids with no hips, and we, we loved doing that. So that movement was already part of my whole existence. Roller skating, everything, ice skating, <laughs> anything I could do. But then I had a friend who says, oh, Ellen, I'm going to ballet class. Come with me. I said, sure. So there I go, and that was it. in the age of 12, immediately I did my ballet class. I did also... Uh, Graham class, and uh, I did some jazz as well, but um, the training was the most important thing. And what happened was that the the school where I went is a, it's a small school, just a, you know neighborhood school basically. I would say in the Hague uh, was um, the teacher was the ballerina of of the Netherlands, <laughs> which I didn't know. So and everything and everyone who taught there was from Netherlands Dance Theater. So you learned everything really proper and and so I did four or five classes a week with my sister. So my it was got a bit of reduction in price because we would come all the time. And on on the Sunday at eleven o'clock, I think we had like the class for, for, for the students, to, yeah, students who wanted to become professional dancers.
0: When did you know you wanted to become a professional dancer? When did you start seeing it as a career?
1: Before that I always wanted to go to, to art school in, in The Hague and become a painter. That's what I wanted to do or study philosophy because I was a I was a reader, continuously reading, questioning. But I think by the age of 13, 14, I decided to become a dancer. And then you sort of look at the roots, which school would be good for you. That's what I felt or what you needed to do in the Netherlands because there were only three companies in those days, like Scapino the Dutch National Ballet and uh, the Netherlands Dance Theater, nothing else. And everybody said, well, when you, when you join a company, you have to be at least sort of soloist standard. So, <laughs> so I would go to Germany every summer to Cologne to do the summer course. I was also after school. I used to go to the Dutch the Hague the Conservatory there, do classes. And then when I had my, all my cooling done, education, formal education, I went to Rotterdam. And that was also good luck because it was the first American modern dance director ever. Uh, it was Lucas Hoving. He was like the founder member of the José Limón company. So it, it was like, no, he says, no, we have to do much more this. Of course, we keep the ballet and, this and that. But the whole curriculum became uh, really exciting and completely new. But my training there for was complete, all the ballet and the pointe shoes and uh, whatever you had to do for repertoire and pas de deux and the whole thing. But also I had Limon, but then the real Limon. And sometimes I, I wish I had retained that because there's so many derivatives of that. And it's so, it was, actually, it was actually, for me, kind of classical. I saw this film of, was it Betty Jones who just died? And I saw her dancing and I thought, yeah, now I remember. That's, that's what Lucas used to teach us. And, and we did Graham, of course.
0: Uh, the Rotterdam Academy—that's what's now Code Arts, if I'm yeah. correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you kind of answered my question a bit, but I was going to ask about what some of your most prominent memories of that time were, or the biggest lessons you learned that have helped you in your career.
1: What I've, what I've learned, for, first of all, is um, my sister was also in school, a little bit below, and my friends, that I really had a, a mind of my own. So. I would never miss classes. I would always be there. I would always work because I took it so seriously. You know, this they tell you that you have to work at least a hundred percent full out, with a spark of talent that maybe you'll get into a company. And I wanted so much so I thought I'd work a hundred and fifty percent. Work you know, and just keep on going and and for me that was the most important thing and my friends were different. They say oh Alan, bravo when we wake up she's going to class (laughs) bye and they said we stay in bed. So to be alone with your own mind and your own foresight that's what i learned in school and we had a lot of fun because I, i i still i've been for a long time like so much energy that i work really hard and in the evening i go out and dance and do all those things you know so i'm not yeah not a miss goody goody but but i never miss class
0: But obviously paid off because I know after school you joined Netherlands Dance Theatre 2, which is the junior company of one of the most prominent contemporary dance companies in the world. Obviously you say there wasn't that many companies in the Netherlands at the time, but what was it attracted you to Netherlands Dance Theatre specifically?
1: I never wanted to join the, the Dutch National ballet company because i I never considered myself a ballet dancer. The Netherlands Dance Theatre at that time I really liked the repertory. They still did some Balanchine. They did some really great pieces of Hans and It was sort of a more of an experimental company I think in experimenting within the technique of classicism as a classical technique. And then we you know we had Jennifer Muller and we had Louis Falco and all these people. And then, of course, uh, Kilian came, which I think is also a great choreographer. But for me, the storytelling element never sort of interested me that much. I love movement. You know, like if there's a story about a boy meets girl, they fall in love and blah, blah, blah. And then out of love and oh no they get back together again thank god and it still isn't that interesting to me the story.
0: Well that makes a lot of sense with why you're so interested in Cunningham who is also very abstract and about purity of movement. When did you first encounter Cunningham's work and what inspired you to move all the way to New York to learn from him?
1: That was like a major falling in love and I was 1970, the Holland Festival, and they came. It was probably I was probably my first year in school, and what I saw was just exactly what I loved, and it was like it was one piece of mercy. Comes in and he's riding his bicycle around stage mayhem some chaos and three girls doing a fantastic beautiful slow adagio as they do. John Cage was running through the auditorium with the starters pistol and just testing all the acoustics and uh, and the ladies with their finery go <laughs> upset <laughs> and I and I loved it. It just moved further than just okay. Here I am, watch me dance and I do a big leap here and I'm catching there and somebody puts me up there. and. And I go off, and, and it was it was a different way of existing, I think. A different way of arranging things on stage, which immediately made me f- fall in love.
0: And then when did you make that decision to move to New York?
1: Yeah, so it, what, I got into trouble in school, of course, because we didn't have Cunningham. And I said to Lucas, you know, for me, I just have to go to New York to study with Merce Cunningham. I think he's, he's amazing. And he says, Why would you go there? He's just a computer artist and you are such a beautiful, dramatic dancer, as exactly what I just didn't, didn't want to sort of be pictured at with my maybe my expressive face, but like I just thought my whole body is expressive in space and time without having to feel something, you know. For the last year we did Mythical Hunter and I was the mother in the piece and I had to do a contract and contract as if I get a baby. For a young person, it's a little bit much, you know. So then what I did in 1974, Christmas, I, I saved all my pennies, everything. I said to my mum, I said, I'm going to New York this Christmas to do the Christmas course with Merce Cunningham. <laughs> and she thinks, yeah, yeah. But I did. I got my ticket. I'm going. I got a friend there. I'm going to stay with him. And that made it like this.
0: What was it like when you got to New York? and What were your first impressions of Merce Cunningham studio?
1: I loved all the people in the studio because there was not that uniformity of this ballet body. There you saw all sorts of people. Moving in space and I just loved that. It was a non-conformist. We are just here sharing time and people are really friendly, and some people really are ambitious, and some people just enjoy dancing. It was just great. And then again I and then I I think I went every year. I also got some grants to do that. And then then when you start working, your life becomes different. You get your paycheck every day, and this and this and that. So you think I can't go to New York without money. Otherwise I just work but in order to make money to go to class. I said but I'm already a professional dancer. I can't do that, you know. Dance theater my ballet master and people there at the top arranged for me that I get this really big grant to go to New York to study with Merce Cunningham. It was amazing. So I left in 78. And New York of course in those days was just the most radical bankrupt city. I mean it was so dark and so much poverty because of that all the the most interesting people would live there because there's no rent you have to pay that so high you could always get by and uh, everybody had spaces to dance in and that's really I thought it was really interesting and also what was so refreshing is like people don't have that sort of art history behind them as we do in Europe. Everybody knows the Renaissance and this classical perspective. This is ethically pleasing, this is not black. People just did whatever they want. You would participate with any sort of interesting experiment.
0: I find that really interesting you saying about with choreography being unhindered by history, you know, that it can, it gives you maybe a confidence rather than being worried about everything that's come before you.
1: Yeah, and also like saying, um, why does it need to be in in a theater? You know, can it not be on the, on the street? Can it not be in your loft? Can it not be in a shopping mall? What it, What is dance? How do we view it? Trisha Brown famously walking the sides of buildings and all that. And I don't think that that would have happened here.
0: You mentioned that you were very open and everyone was very open to take part in these crazy experiments when you were in New York. What were some experimental that you were involved in when
1: you were there? I did so many. I was all, with MERS always, that was my main thing. I was scholarship, so I'd never paid anything there, but like in the morning I would do MERS class, and then I would come back at 4.30, and I would do all the workshops and other things required for that, in, that, in those days, position as scholarship student. But then, of course, I had enough time, and then in that studio, people, Stephen Petronio was there in the afternoon, Mark Morris, all these people, they all came in the afternoon because it inspired them. So all these people, they would see you and say, Ellen, would you like to do this? Or I'm going to do that. Or would you like to be part in this piece? And that's how you did like loads. I also worked with Albert Reed, who was like one of Mercy's uh, beautiful male dancers. And I did duets with him and I was like really young. And he was much older, but it was worked really well as well, so it was interesting. You know, one piece I remember is called The Beast with Two Backs, and this, like, you're all the time connected to another dancer on the back, you know, with Tibetan bells. And, and I remember Murs would come and watch these things, and he would say, well, you danced that really well, and i think, oh, I'm just glued to somebody. And also, I just remembered, like, there was another guy, David Lasby. Who also did hold these patterns with time structures, and like somebody was in, in two fours four and three four, four four. I was six eight, and and then you had to remember like a computer all these patterns when it moved this and this and that for an hour with live music, and it was just the most amazing thing to do. It was just so freeing and listening and moving and and how and how often it also went wrong, you know. And then I did lots of work with Jim Self, and his work was like based in, in that sort of Cunningham creating stuff. But he, he limited himself in a strange kind of quirkiness, maybe, but I enjoyed it. And then I danced with Tom Simons, which was really very uh, successful. So he was my schoolmate. So we worked the first six months in, in a beautiful old bank building. used to be a studio of a famous artist and there we worked every day and we performed it also I remember it so clearly it was made it was called sleeve but it was the the total total distance of the dance was about 1.5 kilometers we performed it at Paula Cooper first and also it was just amazing like John Cage was there, Mrs. Cunningham was there, Jasper Johns was there. You get used to that. You're part of a community, and that was also very different. And then you say, oh, I'm reading uh, James Joyce then and then, or I'm, you know, come. And you say, what? you know, or, oh, we're going to see um, something from uh, Samuel Beckett, you know. Crabsless Taste, let's go, you know. And, and it was like $5 or something, and there we sit. So it was a real great community.
0: I read as well, did you, you dance with Carol Armitage a bit as well? And I'm quite interested in her because she's known as the punk ballerina. Would you say that you yourself were a bit
1: of a, a, a punk during these times? The punk, of course, is part of where we lived in New York and the bands, the musicians were so much part of us as well. You know, you either had a boyfriend who was a musician who bass guitars or something. I used to also perform my solos with with bands, you know, in between bands and then you see a dancer and then another band so they were all part of our community and because that's very different than I say a ballet community uptown more of course I I cut my hair as well and became punk I suppose but not yeah but I always go to class as you know
0: (laughs) and you mentioning musicians there obviously you know you were in Cindy Lopez girls just want to have fun music video which is quite a different note but i just wanted to ask quickly about how this came about and what it was like dancing in what's now a really iconic music video
1: i know you never know these things beforehand you know you never know beforehand what happens you know so it's it's always the, i think it's always good to say yes but like i was co- i was just called up i had i was called up twice one was for david bowie's fame which i, I was on tour so i couldn't do it and then the next one was for for cindy and and it was just a person a choreographer, and she said, like you know Cindy wants girls that sort of represent different boroughs of New York, and we think you you look like Low east Side East Village girl I said okay, I'll just come in and then so everybody came in and then basically what it was you have to, she she did certain things. And if you could do that, if you can follow choreography, in, 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 so we were all in. Had no idea who Cindy Lauper was. She was nobody really in those days, for me at least. And I lived with musicians in a loft at uh, the Bowery, so really very different than Cindy. So we have a We had rehearsal with her, and I came home, and I said, "Guys, listen to this. Girls just want to have fun. What is this about? You know, it's like crazy." But there you go. And then you have a shooting day. We start. I think we started at the Metropolitan Museum with with the fountains, and you do it in, in one day. And then you just realize it was a very professional, you know, schedule and no time wasting. Place. And everything was done, and uh, and then it came out. And what you just also don't know, all of a, you know. MTV was it. I didn't watch MTV, but for most of America, MTV was it. You see it at least 10 times a day. And then all of a sudden it's in your retina and everybody recognizes you and says, Hey, you know, at the airport, it says, You're the second girl. I said, What do you mean? Second girl, you know, they recognize you. And now, even now, I read something in, in the Michael Clark catalog and I don't, maybe it's Catherine Wood. And she says, Well, Ellen is. Also known as a party girl because of Cindy Lauper, and I sort of think, well, doesn't anybody understand that that's all make believe? It's all just selling something. It doesn't mean that any of the girls in there are party girls, including Cindy. You know, in another way, with with Michael and uh, Hilda New Puritan, it was sort of like us, but exaggerated.
0: That's great. I wanted to move on to talking about uh, Michael Clark. Uh, now, and can you tell me about how you first met him and how you came to start working together and have such a strong artistic relationship?
1: Well, I met him in New York, I think the first time in class with Mers, and and the coordination of these arms, of course, are not with a triplet, not Cicchetti. And I just helped him and said, no, it's up here a little bit, and you know, that's, that's how the first, and of course you can see that was a fantastic dancer, beautifully turned out, actually completely different than us all the time parallel. <laughs> and then we just became friends, because I would come every year for Dance Umbrella, and then we would hang out, and I would see his very early works at Riverside. And, um, and then I came, the last time I came for Dance Umbrella was with Biltie Jones, who I also danced with, and, uh, and he asked me, he says, Ellen, would you like to do a duet with me? And I said, well, said, oh, you know, I said, well, you have to come over here. I said, OK, when? He says, well, January, February, March, and the 1st of April, something like that. I said, OK. Okay, sure. I um, I came in the beginning of January. We only had three weeks of rehearsals. And he, of course, is such a great dancer. And it, you see it all happening. And I just picked it up really quickly. It was a, a duet version of parts one to four. And the first performance I did in Liverpool was the first run-through I ever did, you know, of, of parts one to four. Because Michael was much more interested in uh, New Puritans, of course. We were both really kind of shocked by it all. Because once you get there, and we were in the dressing room with our bare bottoms, and Michael says, can we do this, Ellen? And I said, you know, we don't, have, we don't have bad bumps, this skin this is fine and all that. I thought, we just have to do it because that's what it says. So we come out, and we were just so full on and hyper, and we stamped and we stamped around on our platform shoes, and then the flats on the side just caved in, fell on a first row of uh, young girls, Schoolgirls screaming <laughs> it's like that, and Michael, I just had to do my side. So Michael, come on, on, So yeah, we just kept on going. It was kind of really uh, as it should be, you know. Life. That's what I thought with Michael's work. Everything is now and life. It's not a. It's not a rehearsal. It's not about look at me. I'm so good. It's not about you. It's about the whole chaotic sort of coexistence.
0: True, because he worked with so many, and the company worked with so many different artists from different mediums. Whether it's like visual art with Sarah Lucas or Lee Bowery from fashion, and then The Fall with the. Uh... Uh, music. How was it to work with? Was that exciting for you to work with all these different people from different disciplines?
1: Yeah, no, I, I thought from, from what was so exciting working with Michael in those days was like every work was a new work. If you are sort of the center of attention, say in New Puritans as a duet, that's erased. Next thing happens. I know, like a cacophony age, all the guys had the best dresses. And 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 the, we had one sort of love duet, and I said, Julie, this is us. The guys have the dresses, but we're we're going to fall really in love, you know, like a big, a big sort of female love fest.
0: I feel like the the themes in Michael's work with all the fashion and the you talking about the men being in the dresses and and different things. They seem so relevant today with this, so many big conversations around gender and identity. Do you feel like, in that sense, the company was a little ahead of its time?
1: I think completely ahead of its time. And I'm so pleased that we all were so full blown in our participation. Without a reservation, you would go on stage every night. And and it was really do or die, it's about now, not tomorrow, not about this. And certainly not about glory, you know, because there were so many people who also thought, well, what is this bullshit, you know? They couldn't see it yet.
0: Did you have any, like, negative reactions after shows or experience any people who didn't understand what you were trying to do?
1: Well, you know, more from sort of from the dance world, they sort of say, yeah, good choreography, but, you know, I don't need to see Lee Bowery on stage. I don't need to see David Hole on stage. They were sort of more maybe dance snobs. And if you just go back to just watching and, and watching movement or watching uh, that incredible coexistence of characters, of people, of propositions, I think it's 100% more interesting than doing something that is so perfect. Bravo! I could, you, could, you could have a film of it in that perfect way, but if you go to, to see something live, and the fall, of course, There's always, you know, they have a little bit of tension, we have a little bit of tension, you know, just depends on what happened that day, and and we would go, and it's just so interesting.
0: And because obviously Michael Clark Company is still going to this day, and I was wondering, do you still have a relationship with the company? I know that you worked um, as their special projects, um, an artistic documentation officer, and you set up the archive.
1: I actually didn't think much about it but i always had saved everything from michael in my in my experience so i say, okay well then i set up the archive and michael that other book the the monograph is also had to be done which related to the archive because where are the photos where's this where's that so I set that uh, all up and and found a little small room in in the Barbican and made sense of everything I I once was very very ill in the Netherlands and I started an orchid collection and I joined the Royal Orchid organization like really so everything is so once I go in it's so full-blown and I did that with uh, the archive as well and also a lot with um, Organizing these special projects which could be like a film request or this and this and that so then I kept on teaching the company and now they haven't worked for a while so I don't know
0: But there is the big Michael Clark retrospective on at the Barbican at the moment. The archive that you created I presume is a big part of that Have you managed to see the show yet and what what do you think yes. of it?
1: No, it's, yes, I saw, I saw it you know, of course in fight for the opening of this and that. I think I saw it four times and i and I, because I, uh, you know, I my connection is with one of the curators and um, so i said well i want to see like basically everything because when you skim through it the first time i was completely overwhelmed because it was nearly like a proustian sort of experience all of a sudden i got back into that time in, into a very different way of existing different way of existing of the heart so open, innocent, and happy, and so I all sort of a sudden thought, oh yeah. So I thought, well, I have to, I have to encapsulate that and start practicing that part of the heart again. Opened that up, Uh, and I was also—I was overwhelmed and very proud in a much larger thing. What a coincidence that you said yes to Michael Clark or to Cindy Lauper, and here it's still going on and on and on. You know, if you make too many difficulties in your head, I don't think you get somewhere that quickly. So that was really uh, wonderful the first time. I was just a little bit shaking, and then I went again, met with a friend, I showed around, this and this and that, and then. I went just to see everything, just to see, you know, some archived films or every little bit of film and uh, think about it. I loved uh, No Currency with uh, Susan Stenger and the the bass guitarists. Uh, I thought that was a very beautiful environment just to sit there in the black and white. After all, Charlie's... Co- Charlie's amazing. I Charles song.
0: Atlas, the
1: film, yeah. Yeah, it was beautiful. Some others worked really beautifully. And one of two costumes of mine are in it, which is also nice. Other people sort of said... They were really upset that the dancers were not named underneath. They said, there are all these big photographs of you and there's n- nobody knows that it's you or that's Julie, or that's Matthew, or that's so-and-so. Without all these dances, it wouldn't have happened.
0: Do you think maybe that sometimes people don't realise how much influence the specific dancers have on a, a choreographer's piece and the, the creation of the piece and how it turns out, and yeah, the value of dancers as uh, artists in their own right?
1: Yeah, or, or just their toughness. Like in those days, you would sometimes rehearse till 3 o'clock in the morning. But, but I, I, when I saw it, I'd never I never thought about it because I can see me. But I have to think that whole argument through much more.
0: No, but it's an interesting uh, dialogue, I think, to think about. So obviously we've talked a lot about the past, but you're still dancing and teaching now, which I find amazing because so many dancers, everyone, a lot of people view dance as quite a short career and some people end up stopping when they're 35 or 40 what do you think is really important about making sure that we have people being able to dance for a longer expanse of time and do you think it's really important to see people going on to have long careers in dance and still performing maybe uh, later than we might expect i
1: think i think it's super important of course it depends on the person because some people really just Want to stop? Want to start a family? Sometimes when you started a family, you have two or three children, or especially for the for the. For the, for the woman, the body changes maybe a little bit, and then also you want to be at home, I think. You can't go on tour, or you can go on tour with your little child, but some people do it actually really well, but most of the time it's just one child, you know, but if you have more, I don't know really, I have no children, so I'm just talking on top of my head. But what I see with men as well is like after a while, you know, when they get 35, they think, well, I have to make much more serious money for my family. So, you know, I even know one really great dancer, where. He became a plumber and much, oh, really wealthy now. <laughs> you know, so there's more to that. So it's individual. But I, for me, you know, my biggest star, my my most, my biggest mentor, my most biggest sort of person I adore and love is of course Mrs Cunningham. And you never stop there's no problem you invent something else you do it slightly different and also like if you look at john cage they just die whilst working nearly and i feel i'm i'm like that you know if i can keep on going i still have all these sort of passions and sometimes i think well maybe later on i can Work a little bit less, and then I work on the other side. I do this and this and that. I would like to work with other people also. The collaboration I always really enjoy. Then I meet some other people from Paris and say, "Oh, Ellen, you know, you can do anything you want. You can ask so and so and so. So you make a solo dance." And I sort of think, "I've done the solo dances. I know what it's like." So I think, "Well," I said to her, "You said, but." Yeah, I do want to dance, but I want to figure out a different context, because otherwise you always fall back into something you already know.
0: And then you want to try and push yourself to do something new and keep learning or just spe- experimenting.
1: Yeah, and that also is, gives you the energy and enthusiasm to do it, because then you get something. That's, that's where my, my head is, and also to keep the body going, you know, in a good way. Also, the dancing can't be about what it was, you know, I can't jump really high, I can't do this, so what is it then? And all those things need time and you need space and it would be nicer to collaborate, I think.
0: Talking about collaboration, you've worked with so many amazing people throughout the years. If there's someone you haven't met, if you could meet and talk to any female dance practitioner from history, who would it be
1: and why? Why? And what would you
0: want
1: to ask them? That's such a good question. Well, I think you just, you know, sp- from spirit, from the spirit. Isadora Duncan, the way she lived her life, although it's an unhappy ending in the way, but that was really revolutionary for a woman to do her dancing. Or who is also was revolutionary in her dancing, and very strong female, was Anna Pavlova. She went everywhere and she put her point shoes on and she dances. I think Pina Bausch also, you know. Also very single-minded. I think that's it. She just needed to do those things. And I think Café Müller is one of the best works I've ever seen. And, who, and do, you, do, you, do, you, do you have one?
0: I, I think you've, you've stolen one of mine. Mine would also be Pina Bausch. Um, I would love to to meet her, she's one of my favorite choreographers. And then another, maybe Mary, I'm very interested in the, like, Weimar Republic, kind of Berlin 20s scene. So perhaps someone like Mary Wigman. Of
1: course, Mary Wigman also. And even Martha Graham, what a woman. She just, in in a men's world when it was just all men, they all do what they needed to do. The women, you know, real female artists. That's what it is, they're artists. They don't serve the men, you know. maybe that's what, when I was young, why I didn't want to be a ballet dancer. You had to be so feminine and kind of meek and obedient. doesn't work for me so much. Well,
0: thank you so much, Ellen. That's amazing. I hope you all enjoyed the second episode of the Terpsichore podcast with the amazing Ellen van Schulenberg. The exhibition, Michael Clark Cosmic Dancer, which we mentioned throughout the podcast, has just reopened at the Barbican in London after the UK's second coronavirus lockdown and will run until the 3rd of January, 2021. Make sure you head over if you'd like to see some images and films of Ellen in action. If you've enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe and leave us a rating and review as it helps other people find us. You can also follow Terpsicle Mag on Instagram or sign up to our newsletter via our website, www.terpsichore-mag.com. Thanks so much again for listening to the Terpsichore Podcast with me, Emily May.